you got your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 13. Um, in the first service, you know, we did that song for the first time, uh, the, the You Hold Me Now. And it really, man, it just hit home. I, you know, very rarely does a, does a worship song really just kind of get, get you the way that got me in the first service. And, um, and I wasn't crying in a blubbering mess or anything, but just it really hit me and struck me. And, and um, you know, I was thinking through our message and what we're going to be teaching on today. And it hit me how much we underestimate how big God is. Um, that we get so caught up in our life and the stuff and um, trying to just exist that we just forget what we're created for and we forget how big God is in our life. And so I want us to kind of refocus on that a little bit um, and uh, get, to this, get to this core that we are created for great things, that God desires to do great things in us. There's a lot of stuff that goes on around us. I, I get that. Um, I recognize all the, the, the things that happen and all of the life that, that kind of closes in on us at times. And sometimes I wish God would just kind of just breathe or snap his fingers or speak the word or whatever he desires to do. And all of that stuff just goes away. Sat with a family this week who lost a loved one. And uh, the diagnosis in uh, January, around the 1st of January, of stage 4 lung cancer. And... Um, and um, this is a, a woman who had, was very health conscious, wouldn't drink out of plastic, wouldn't microwave plastic. One of the most health conscious people I think I've met in a long time. And then to get a diagnosis of lung cancer and, and a month later she's, she's gone. And I was sitting with them and we were just talking about comfort and talking about God and just how good God is. I think in those times it's, it's, it's good to hurt, but it's also good to talk about how good God is. And... Um, I left just thinking, God, why is there so much pain? Why do we? How, why is there so much that we have to deal with? I mean, you could take all this away. And I really believe that God does have the power, the authority, and the ability to snap his fingers, and all hurt, all sickness, all disease, poverty is gone, wiped out. He's so great, he can even wipe it from the face of the earth and from our memories, that we wouldn't even know anything that terrible could have existed. But I really feel that in those quiet moments when I'm questioning God and, and having those heart conversations with God, I really just feel him speaking to me to say, I do desire to change the world, Matt. I do desire to see things differently. But I choose to work through my kids. You see, I think when we understand that God can do anything he wants to do, yet chooses to work through us. It's just like Jesus. God could have done anything he wanted to do about how we could be restored in a relationship. But he chose to work through humanity. He chose for Jesus to be wrapped in humanity and take on the constraints of humanity so that we could have a relationship with our Savior. And I'm really convinced that God wants to change the world, and he does want to do it through his kids. And sometimes we just get overwhelmed, and, and I don't know if it's us wallowing in our own pity or, or what it is, but we get kind of bogged down and forget that that's a mission that God has designed us to advance the kingdom of heaven. And we kind of just get sidetracked. And, and you know, we, it's like we have spiritual ADD. And we just start letting the cares and worries and strife and, and stuff. And, and, and I, I was telling Heather, I said, you know, nothing is, is sometimes the only thing that gets in the way of Christ followers. You know, when you say, well, man, what happened? I mean, how did you just get off course? Nothing. I mean, the enemy will use nothing to throw us off course. So we have to be focused on our mission. And, you know, I, we really think, well, can we really change the world? 
just challenge you. This past Christmas, our community is less than a year old. And I was reflecting about the areas that not we have done, but God has worked through us to change the world. And, and one that just hit the front of my mind and just kind of, uh, I guess, pinged the radar was this last Christmas. When we decided as a church community, it's not right that somebody doesn't have Christmas. And we have some kids at, at a school close by that weren't going to get Christmas. And you stepped up and said, you know, we're going to do something about that. And we delivered gifts. We, we adjusted budgets. We made it happen. And you cannot tell me that when that child opened the gifts Christmas morning, that their world wasn't changed. That a child that knows, I mean, they're elementary kids, but they know what's going on. They know the conversations mom and dad are having. And you can't tell me that when they thought Christmas wasn't going to happen and because you as a church community let the gospel work through you to give Christmas to a family, that when that kid opened that present, it didn't change his world. You also can't tell me that as mom and dad were trying to figure out how to make this happen for their family and knowing their current situation, and then all of a sudden the school calls and says, hey, we've got gifts for your family. You can't tell me those parents' lives weren't changed. That is, they got to not just see it, but be a part of that joy Christmas morning with their kids. That their life wasn't changed because the generosity of somebody they don't even know and have no way of ever paying back affected Christmas for their home. You can't tell me their life wasn't changed. And t- track it down the line. Let's say 15, 20 years from now, this, this child um, has, has been introduced to the gospel and the gospel's at work in his life and Christmas rolls around for his family and they take a moment and they pray and they say, we're going to thank God for this Christmas because I remember a Christmas that wasn't going to happen and somebody somewhere through the work and grace and love of the gospel gave us Christmas. You can't tell me their world and legacy has not been changed. One of the, the missionaries of a family in our church, Saba and Aaron, are moving to Toronto, Canada. I'm very near and dear to that because my daughter's in Canada. They just came off of three years in the mission field in Poland. Saba was, was born in Argentina. 100 years ago, a missionary from Mississippi showed up in Argentina, shares the gospel with Saba's great-grandfather. His world was changed. Because of that tiny seed of the gospel, a generation of church planters has emerged. Saba's great-grandfather, his grandfather, his father, and Saba and his brother are in the mission field, planting churches, spreading, living, sharing the gospel. You can't tell me that one small decision to say, I'm going to go to Argentina and try to minister to somebody or share the gospel with somebody does not change the world. There have been, I, I, I can't wait to stand in heaven and I want to I be near Saba when God says, let me show you what one seed, I'd like to meet the missionary that, that talked to his great-grandfather. Let me show you what that one conversation did for the kingdom of heaven. And look at all the people that are impacted by the gospel because you chose to talk to one person. I'm convinced that God does want to change the world and he wants to do it through his kids. I know I'm, I'm talking a lot in our intro, but I, I really think we as a church, we've got to get this. We've got to understand this. Because the Jews in the, in the Jewish society and culture of the first century, they were really looking for this Messiah. They were desiring so much for the world to change. 
The Jewish people were, were a people that had, had just been mired in the history of one bad relationship after another, and they were waiting for the Messiah. They believed when the Messiah stepped on the scene that he would overthrow the government, he would, rule, he would come in and, and with a sword and change the world. Well, we can see history happened quite differently. But here's the thing. The Jewish people, all that they had seen and how a kingdom advances is by force. Because one ruling force after another had come in and conquered the Jewish people and enslaved them. And now the Jews sit under the rule of the Roman Empire who took it by force. And so the only way the Jewish people know how to advance a kingdom is by force. And Matthew has been so impacted by the by the mercy and the, and the gospel that he writes this account of Jesus. And he writes it specifically to the Jewish people to show them, the Jewish people, that Jesus is the king. And so think about this. A people group who all your life, all your heritage, all your history, and, and you look at it, is going under the rule of one empire after another that has been taken and enforced upon you. And now this guy's giving sharing you about this man, Jesus, who advances the kingdom of heaven, is the Messiah who we thought would come and rule with the sword. The Messiah steps on the scene, and he never raises a sword. He takes down an empire without a shot being fired. How does he do that? It's through the cross, through the gospel, through God wrapping himself in humanity because he desires to work through humanity, comes in and changes the world. Go, go to Matthew 13 in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some uh, Bibles for you. Um, we, we won't call them pew Bibles because we don't have pews. We'll, we'll call them flow Bibles because they're on the flow. Um, I love you guys. That joke worked twice this morning. <laughs> and I promise I won't recycle it. Use it next week. Um, go to Matthew 13. Um, let's kind of look at how Jesus advances the kingdom because you know jesus doesn't just desire to come and be king king of kings and lord of lords and sit and do nothing so let's let's look at how he does it how he's able to do this without using force or being violent and because we have to understand something is that as people who follow christ who submit our life to the gospel that we have to become active in advancing the kingdom of god God desires us to do something. I, I get, I, I'll, I'll make fun of Christians who come into a relationship with Jesus and plant themselves in a church and never do anything. And they get this mentality of like, I'm going to sit here until Jesus comes back. And I want nothing more than to put a shock button under those seats. I just want to see you move, you know. I think the I think church leaders have to run by that walk by that person every once in a while and hold a mirror in front of their nose. Yep, still here. I don't want us to have that mentality. Okay? Life is an active thing. We have to be active in advancing the kingdom of God. And let me say this, because we've got a this this challenged me this week. In being active in advancing the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. We need to start living like Christ followers instead of expecting everyone else to do it. And that hit me this week as I'm driving. Um, you know, I, I can 
I can fall into this mentality. Remember, this is a safe place, and we're all me too. So, hey, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and I'm just going to share for a moment that I will, I will start to look at other people and go, they should be acting like a Christian. And I am in no way doing the same. And so God really called me to account this week, and I want to call us as a church community to account that let's, let's us start living like Christ followers instead of expecting everyone else to do it. Because I think if they actually see it done through us, then we might be able to set an example. So let's, let's track into it this way. In Matthew 13, Jesus is speaking in parables. And remember, he's talking in parables because, and he's fulfilling prophecy because there are people who want to take the truth and take the words of the gospel and twist them and actually turn that into rebellion. And then there are people who want to hear the truth and really have a genuine desire in their heart to understand it. And so Jesus tells stories about something familiar to explain a mystery. And those that desire to know the true meaning ask, and the truth is revealed to them. I told you last week, Bible and Scripture is the only book that we have the author fully present and fully with us, that when we read it, if we don't understand it, ask. And then when you ask, open your ears, because he may not just say, hey, Matt, here's exactly what I'm saying here. He may bring other people beside you to start to model that for you, to teach you, and then you have to do it, because that's where it really becomes an understanding. There's three types of people that Jesus is speaking these parables to. Um, the first one are the Pharisees, and we like to pick on the Pharisees a lot. Uh, I, I think we've got to be careful about how hard we do pick on the Pharisees, because honestly, I think we find ourselves more like them than like Jesus a lot of times. And that's when we got to be humble and repent and say, God, help us. Let's follow Jesus. And the Pharisees really are, uh, their whole view with the Messiah is, is the world had gotten so bad in their opinion that they were desiring the Messiah to come back. They believed that they, if they could be holy enough, if they could get rid of all of the sin in the world, then it would be clean enough and the Messiah would want to come. And what happened with this is they felt that when they got rid of all the sin and they were holy and all the holiness had, had, had reached a certain level, it's kind of like going to the fair and you've got the thing that you hit the hammer, you have to swing the hammer and hit the button and hit the bell. You know, or I likened it in the first service to the cheesy church thermometer where they do the giving campaigns and they get their red markers and they go up and up and up and and, you know, hopefully it goes out the top, and they're like, yay, we did it. Um, the Pharisees are kind of, they have kind of like a holiness thermometer that they've, they've got on the scene, and they're thinking, if we can get the holiness up, Jesus will come back. The Messiah will come back. And so the problem with that is they felt that when the Messiah came back and ruled with the sword, that they would have the political authority. The problem with that mentality is, well, there's several problems with that mentality. A big problem is, is they felt they would have authority instead of the Messiah having authority. And so we've got to be careful to fall into that. The other thing they would do is they would segregate themselves for people they considered sinners. I mean, you read through Scripture, that's why they would say, just sneer at Jesus for being around sinners. You've got to think about something. Who did Jesus desire to be around? And when he had dinner, a night free for dinner, where did he choose to go? Look at the schedule. Of some, of, of you look at your schedule. Look at Jesus' schedule. That'll tell you a lot about who we like to be around. And so the other group we've got are the zealots. 
The Zealots were, a, you could call them a, a militant group because they had seen the empire and, and the Jewish people being taken by force. They believe you return that. They felt that you needed to be forceful and they were ready to go pick a fight. I mean, they were looking to scrap it out. I mean, they, they, I'm sure they would be the guys at school like 315 in the playground. You know, you're taking a different route home, you know. But we, and then the other third group was the disciples, where they truly desired to know the truth that Jesus was teaching. This is very relevant for us as a church today because too many churches close their doors to who they call sinners. You know, here's the thing that we got to understand. We are all sinners. Me too. Okay? The worst of us in this room is no better than the best of us, and the best of us is no worse than the worst of us. Okay? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Okay? So we have to understand that. We don't separate that. And we're not going to go out and expand the kingdom by force. It's, it's not going to do any good. We'll end up looking like jerks. And, and we can't do that. Let's, let's be a church full of disciples that truly desire to know the truth of Jesus and follow him. Okay, so let's set that up. And that's the audience that he's reading. He's speaking these things to. The first parable that he teaches is the parable of the weeds, or um, some translations call it the parable of the tares. And uh, I would like th- this parable, Jesus teaches it, and then he explains it. What I'd like to do is start in verse 36, and let's read the explanation and let's go, let's, let's understand it and then go back. Um, so I want to kind of explain it and then go back. So verse 36, um, then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came into him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Or if you have a King James version, it says, what meaneth this? Um, he answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. This is kind of like, you know, when you watch a movie, and you're like, who is that actor? I know, who is that? And you can't watch the movie because you're trying to figure out who it is. And so you pause the movie, you go on your phone or your computer, you, you look it up. Oh, that's who that is. And then you go on watching the movie. What I just did, we just paused the parable. We went and we learned who the characters are. The one who sowed the good seed was Jesus, the Son of Man. Okay? The wheat are the seeds, the us, the Christ followers. The weeds are the, are the people that the enemy sows that, that are evil. The one who sows the weeds is the enemy. Okay? So we've just put all the characters and the harvesters are the angels. We just put all the characters in play now. Verse 40, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Okay, now let's understand this. We know who the players are. Let's go back and read the parable. It's verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. 
The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. What he's talking about is, is, is this, this harvest and this life. Now, I want us to pull some things out of this parable, and then we're going to look at the other two. But here's what you've got to understand. God does the planting. God plants the good seed. So you need to understand something, that you are here for a reason. God has planted you here for a reason. You're in this room for a reason. You are in this community, this state, this time in history for a reason. You are in the family you are in for a reason. I know some of you have uh, tough family situations. I know some of you grew up in tough family situations. But you have to understand that in God's wisdom, God's sovereignty, God's grace, God's love, He placed you in the exact family that you were placed in for a purpose. It might be so that is the best environment for you to hear and receive and accept the gospel. Or it might be the best environment for your family to hear and receive and accept the gospel. But you have to understand that you are here for a reason. That's part of God's sovereignty. The, um, the weeds, when I went back and studied, uh, the, and I tried to gain an understanding of, of these weeds, the seed that the enemy sowed and the, that was being referred to in this parable is called darnell. Darnell is a type of weed that as it grows up looks exactly like wheat until right at harvest. At harvest, wheat will head up and have the seeds of wheat and the darnell will have a different, it'll, it'll try to create more weeds. It will have a different head on it. And so you've got to understand something. You're looking across a field of green. And all you see is a field of green. And in that are wheat and weeds. And it's, even when you get up close, it's hard to tell the difference. And here's where we've got to understand this as, as people who follow Christ and as people who put our hope and faith in Christ and take an active role in expanding the kingdom of God is that we are wheat. Our job is to grow up and be wheat. Our job is not to try to convert the weeds because wheat cannot make a weed look like wheat. Can't do it. That's only God that can do that. Okay? The other thing, if you look at verse 27 and 28, the servants came to the master or the angels said to God, should we go and pull the weeds? Understand this. It is not our job to pull the weeds. I love that because I hate weeding. I hate pulling weeds in my flower bed. I hate dealing with weeds in my yard. The little dandelion and those stickly type green things, that no matter what you put on them, they never go away. I can't stand weeding anything. And it's not my job to go pull the weeds. I love that. It's like a free pass. If Heather said, I don't have to weed the flower bed, I'm watching TV, baby. We have to understand this. You have a free pass. It is not your job. It is not my job to go pull up the weeds. Because what happens is we get into this idea of looking at every person going, are they wheat? Are they a weed? Are they wheat? Are they a weed? And then what happens when we make the judgment and assessment, that's a weed. 
Let's pull it. We could have very easily, as, as the master said, no, you, you could uproot the wheat. Let them grow together. You see, when we start judging people, we can never be accurate. When, when Jesus is telling the story in verse 30, he says at the end of the age, the harvesters are going to come out. There will be a judgment. I mean, we're not going to sugarcoat this. At the end of the age, we will stand in judgment before, before God. And I think it's just how you view that is based on how you have handled grace or how you've let grace affect your life. Meaning, if, if your view of God is a God of judgment and wrath, man, turn to grace. Because those who live in that grace and have been changed by the gospel will see a God of grace. And so we've got to understand that when God does the judgment, it will be accurate. Because when we get into pulling weeds, we'll do more harm than good. When I do have to weed our flower bed, I found the easiest way to do it, men. You fire up the weed eater and you let her go. You know, you can angle it all you want, but you just try to get the weeds that are in there. You know, you'll be spitting some mulch everywhere, but that's all right. It's collateral damage. But when I'm done, there's pieces of flour laying in the mulch. There's pieces of whatever plants we have in the flower bed in the mulch. And I'm just like, ah, it'll, it'll turn into mulch. What happens is when, and when we as Christians try to start judging and pulling weeds, we're going to do more harm than good, and we leave fragments of people's lives to turn into mulch. And we end up, instead of helping people, we end up destroying people because we desire to use force in, in our own judgments. Let me, let, me just, let me say a couple things here and we'll move on. Jesus is speaking of hell in verse 30. Remember his audience. He's speaking about hell to his disciples to encourage them to be wheat. He's not speaking of hell to people who don't know Christ to try to scare the hell out of them. To try to scare them into conversion. I have, I've, been, I've, I've experienced those people. And that's probably in the last 10 years the closest I've been to a fight was people trying to preach to me and use hell as a scare tactic. I don't bow up at many things, but I do about that. When you're abusing Jesus, and Jesus is not a fool, but when you try to make him look like a fool to get your way, I, I'm going to have an issue with that. So let's get practical with this. Um, being wheat, okay, we've got to grow up and be wheat. Think about your, think about your job. And I'm going to challenge you with something. This week in the quiet moments of your heart, just get somewhere, get quiet. And I want you to do a gut check. And I want you to just get down because I know some of you have, have trouble with your job. I want you to ask yourself, I want you to ask God this question. God, did you put me here? If in the depths of your soul that answer is no, leave. But in the depths of your soul, you really believe and know that God has placed you in that job. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to grow up and be wheat. I want you to be the best employee that you can be. Make your boss look good. Whether they've got your back or not, make your boss look good. Make your company more profitable. Be the best employee you can be for the sake of being wheat. Because God has planted you there. Grow up and be fruitful where God has planted you. If you don't feel he's planted you there, then leave. And this begs the question, well, why would God plant me here? Or a bigger question that people get to in questioning some of the bigger things of God's plan is, 
Why does, why does God allow bad things to happen? Because my work environment's not a healthy place. And, and I do believe God's planted me there, but I don't like it there. Or why does God allow bad things to happen? Why does God allow evil to continue in the world? Because we're looking from a perspective of wheat. Because wheat and weeds are growing side by side. And so we're looking at maybe some of the fruit of these weeds and saying, that's evil, that's bad, I don't like that. But what we have to understand is that as God sees from a different perspective, what we see as evil, God may be working something bigger than we can imagine. I love watching movies and getting to the end and having those aha moments. When we get to the harvest, when we actually enter heaven and we look back and we say, God, I do want to, I don't know if we'll be able to think about asking God anything because I think it's going to be bigger and better and more amazing than we can imagine. But if I were going to ask God, show me where you took all of those hurts, those evil, those things in my life. Show me where you did something. And he'll say, watch this. And so we've got to understand that God's willing to look bad as he's growing us up because he's working his plan. And so the bottom line here is grow up and be where God has planted you. Let's look at the other parables here, the seeds. We've got uh, weeds, seeds, and yeast. And so the, uh, the seeds, let's look at that. This is in verse 31 and 32, and let me read it for you. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. There's debate over this parable. Um, I like to call them the old religious men that sit in the room and argue back and forth what Jesus really meant here. Um, let's, let's speak the truth here, because some commentaries say uh, the mustard seed and this tree, it's talking about the false growth of churches, which, the, you know, you look at the church in, in America, and, and we have this uh, amazing exponential growth in churches. You look at the world, and there's these massive uh, amounts of growth in the church. And what these commentaries are saying is they've got to be careful because if it grows too big, it's not going to do any good. And remember last week in the parable where the birds ate the seed, these commentators believe that the birds represent evil that come in and enter the churches. So it's, he's taught that these commentators are talking about false growth. Um, other commentators are talking about where Jesus is planting the mustard side seeds of faith, and it's growing into something significant. Let's draw a line through this and look at the truth of the, of the parable. The parable is talking about there's something that is large that grows out of a small seed. And that is, is where God, where Jesus is desiring us to understand something. I mean, think about his audience. He's speaking to 12 disciples in the Roman Empire. The largest empire in the world at the time. And he's telling them, the things that you have seen me do, you're going to do in greater measure that you're going to go out and you're going to change the world. And these are men who, who have only known force and they're going to do it with love and grace and peace and the gospel. I think this is an encouragement because think about how those men, those disciples, have changed the world with the gospel. I mean, in one day alone, one of the biggest riffraffs of the group, Peter, gets up and he preaches the gospel, straight up, doesn't, there's no light show, nothing flashing, nothing, straight up, here it is, this is who Jesus is, this is what happened, and 3,000 men come to know Christ, 
Tell me that's not changing the world. Either way, we've got to understand that change starts small and will grow if we're patient. And I put in there we've got to be patient because we're in this fast society, the instant gratification. You know, there are things that God desires to do that are going to take time. It's like the man who went to God and said, God, what's a million bucks to you? He goes, it's just a penny. He said, God, what's a million years to you? He goes, just a second. He said, God, can I have a penny? He said, just a second. We've got to learn to be patient. We've got to learn to work and move in God's timing. See, think about this tree. It says that it provided a place for the birds to perch, which means that when the gospel takes root and grows in our life, it should be providing something to the people around us. I mean, people should, people should desire to be around you because of what they see God doing in your life. I mean, trees don't go chasing birds. If they did, I would be really freaked out. I'd be more freaked out by trees than I am birds. Birds fly to trees. Think about your environment, your world. Do people flock to you or do they run from you? I mean, is, is the gospel at work in your life in such a way that it, man, there's something provisional about it to the people in your office, the people in your family, the people in your school, the people in your neighborhood? I mean, are you providing a place of rest and peace and grace for people who are hurting and desperately need peace and grace and love? Let's look at the yeast, verse 33 and 34. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Here's kind of what it's explaining about the parables. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things since the creation of the world. Okay, this is another parable where the old man in the room, I don't know why I like to say that or think that. That's my mental picture of these biblical scholars. I think of a conference room with a big elaborate table and these guys just sit and argue all day about what, what was really going on. And let's draw a line of truth. What, they, what some commentators believe is that Jesus is actually teaching here with the yeast because yeast is referred to as something evil in Scripture several times. That, that this is false doctrine that can get into a church and begin to grow and begin to change how a church operates. Yes, we're going to be on guard with false doctrine. As your pastor, it's my responsibility to make sure that our doctrine is sound. That's why we don't... I get emails, do you teach a prosperity gospel? I have people say, well, are you on the healing gospel? No. I send this response. We are straight up gospel of Jesus. Period. That's what we're going to teach. If God wants to prosper you and you to be rich, giddy up. You know, let's go change the world with that. If God wants to heal you from, from whatever illness or sickness or disease you have, giddy up. Let's go change the world with that. If God wants to keep us poor and sick, giddy up. Let's go change the world with that. The bottom line is Jesus, the gospel, has changed our lives with grace. Jesus doesn't promise us money if we put our faith in him. He doesn't promise us health if we put our faith in him there will be a day we step into heaven where we will experience none of that but in this day he says there will be trouble but what jesus does promise is to be our source and our provision 
He knows exactly what we need. We tell him all the time what we want. But this doctrine, we're going to teach Jesus. We're going to preach our guts out about who Jesus is and let him decide what he wants to give us or withhold from us, period. And you've got a responsibility in your homes and in your life to protect against this false doctrine. Because, yes, the enemy does want to kind of start to tweak how you believe. And you've got to know Scripture. Scripture is going to be the first thing that we use to determine, is this right or not? I mean, we, we can get into all kinds of debate over doctrine and theology. There are some things, you've heard me say this, it's closed hand, open hand. The, the things that we hold in our closed hand, did Jesus die? You bet. Is he coming back? Absolutely. When's he coming back? We'll put it in the open hand and we can talk about it. I will not debate you on whether he died for me and he rose for me and he's coming back. We can debate on it. Is he coming back premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial? Is it pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib? See, that just kind of glazed most of you over. That's why it's in the open hand. All I care about, Jesus is coming back because he said so. So understand, doctrine is vital. Doctrine is important, but it all is foundational on the gospel. So let's, let's see what he really meant by this because other commentators feel that yeast is something where, hey, it's something internal. It grows, and, and look at the church. Look at the disciples where it was small, and something happened, and then it just rises out of uh, these disciples. Either way, whichever camp you want to want to read and understand, let's look at the truth and draw the line of truth through this parable. The truth is Jesus is saying there should be something internal that's developing in you with the gospel. Think about yeast. Heather gets stressed out, and one of her stress releases is making bread. Her stress, my benefit. I stress her out just when I'm hungry. But I can tell how stressed out she is by how she makes bread, which bread she's making and how hard she works the dough. But think about yeast. First, it has to be activated. And then it has to be worked into the dough. I mean, she just can't put, scoop yeast and set it in the dough and then bake it and it's all good. You're going to end up with something that's between disgusting and nasty. But as it activates and works in the dough and starts to, starts to move through that dough and then a reaction happens the gospel is just like that the gospel has to be activated in your life otherwise it's all external i mean the gospels at work in my life is it working in your life has it been activated in your life and i'm not i'm not going to push a decision emotionally but spiritually has the gospel activated in your life and then has it worked into every fiber of your being because that's what the gospel must do. It, and with us living the gospel, we gotta, as it permeates us, we permeate our world with the gospel. So we, we become something that's flavorful to the world around us because of what God has done in us. So you think about this. We grow up as wheat. We understand that as the mustard seed... There should be something external happening. We should be providing. We should be giving kids Christmas. We should be making things happen. Last spring break, we filled backpacks full of food and took them to kids who weren't going to eat over spring break. There should be external provisional things happening to our community. And then just like the yeast, there should be growth internally. I mean, we should be, we should be maturing with God. We should be changing how we approach who we are with God and who we are with each other. And there should be something happening 
And so we start to change the world. And we start to get, uh, the enemy kind of comes in and says, but what can you do? You're one person. You're one wheat. You're one seed. You're one yeast. Let me encourage you with this. Look around this room. There's another service, a little bit about the same size, a little bit more people in the first service that was full of someone who is one wheat, one seed, or one yeast. And we come together. I think God does that so we can say, ah, I'm not the only one. But then think about how something we think is insignificant starts to grow. Where God lets you have one conversation. Maybe it's the guy in the cubicle next to you at work that you know is going through a divorce. And you begin to just put your arms around them with the gospel. That he may feel like a failure as a father and a husband and as a person. And, and you may, through the gospel, be able to help him understand how valued he is. Or maybe, maybe it's the mother that is at the end of it because she doesn't know how to handle her kids. She's lonely. And you wrap your arms around her and let her understand what genuine love is through the gospel. I'm convinced that that changes the world. And when we start to do that, think about how that builds. Think about some of the larger social issues of our, of our culture and our society. And we live as we, and we live the gospel, and it starts to move through us, and change starts to happen. These social issues start to see some change as well. Think about abortion. Instead of us as the church and Christians picketing Congress and trying to vote and yell our way to overturn Roe versus Wade. How about we see the gospel wrap our arms around a young girl that's found herself in a situation and say, Jesus loves you more than you can imagine. How about instead of us picketing and putting a side between, uh, with homosexualities about gay marriages, how about we extend a hand of grace and let them understand the real love of Jesus through the gospel? so that they can understand that they are loved and valued in a way that they have never imagined before. Change starts to happen. And it's done without force. It's done through the cross. It's done through the gospel. It's done because we are living exactly as we've been designed to live, and that is to grow up as wheat, to be seeds of provision for the world around us and for God to do something inside of us. And so you are exactly where God has placed you for exactly the reason he's put you here. And I want to encourage you to live that purpose. And I want you to ask yourself this question this week. I want you to spend some time, even when you ask God, have you put me in this job? Ask yourself the bigger question of, am I a change agent? Write that down and reflect on that this week. Am I a change agent? Do I use the gospel as my source to change the world or do I use any and other means necessary to get my way? And let's be a church of people who are willing to change the world. And let's let the gospel so change us that change becomes a part of our life. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Um, God, I, I thank you for leaving, leaving us to do work. Thank you for not just pulling us out and letting us live boring, mundane lives that we just 
um, we find grace and we sit and rot in that grace, but that you use uh, your love, you extend your grace for us to get up and be active with it. Thank you for creating us to live life. And Father, we just ask that as we spend time in your word this morning that we are changed. Father, may we be so transformed by the grace you've extended in our life that changes something that becomes natural to the world around us. Father, I just ask that if in the times, not if, but in the times that we have been judgmental and as representatives of your kingdom and agents of change through the gospel, we've become judgmental about wheat and weeds and we have hurt people. God, we've hindered um, what we think are weeds, but you know is wheat. God, we've just, we've just disgusted people with our behavior. Forgive us. God, in your sovereignty, help us to help us to change how we how we love, how we extend grace. God, keep us from being selfish so that we can provide for people, our communities, and the world around us. God, give us a self-awareness so that as we look inside our own life, our heart and our, our, our mind, give us the self-awareness to see where the gospel needs to be activated and it needs to permeate every part and every fiber of our being. Father, may we love you and extend the love that you've shown us to the world around us. Thank you for humbling yourself into humanity to change the world, and thank you for giving us that task. I can, I can, God, I can just imagine how, how much more excited you are to see your kids Thank you for the encouragement. Father, let us leave here encouraged this week. Keep us from feeling any guilt. God, keep the enemy from just heaping guilt on us. But let us leave encouraged so that we're ready, willing, and able to change the world. We love you so much. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.